0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations.
1: Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on-brand.
2: Welcome, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Felix. I'm here,
3: And I'm Sarah Green Carmichael from Bloomberg.
1: Sarah's back. Welcome
2: back, Woo. Sarah.
1: It's great to have you.
3: Oh, it's so wonderful to be back with you guys.
1: You know, Felix, I don't know if I told you this, but one of Sarah's epic recommendations from last time was her walking habit in England, including in the Lake District.
2: Oh, I remember all the peaks, right?
1: Yeah. This summer, I was in the Lake District was on a lovely walk and I took a picture of what I thought was a pretty random landscape. Okay. And I texted it to her and she immediately identified no. exactly where I was.
2: Very impressive, Sarah.
1: <laughs> That's
3: one of my favorite games to play is What's That Fell? Can you tell what the mountain is just from the picture? <laughs> I was so delighted that you got to go there, me here.
1: It was great and
2: well worth your recommendation. Absolutely, it was fantastic. It was a really unusual peak or just you recognize everything in the Lake District?
3: Every peak is a special, unique mountain. They're like
1: snowflakes. <laughs> oh, Each one's different. yeah, right. <laughs> I think I heard
2: that before. It doesn't really help
1: me to identify places Mm. that's why you have google images right that's right
2: yes (laughs) i know you love (laughs) it
1: for the mere mortals who are not sarah green carmichael google images does the
2: trick yeah we'll help you every time (laughs) and we have topics what did you bring for us
3: Something I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on is this emergence of music as an asset class. I'm sure you guys have been watching the headlines of different artists selling the rights to their catalog. Mm -hmm. It also seems like maybe there's a bit of a backlash or that some of these catalogs may have been overvalued. So we can get into that. (laughs) And we can talk a little bit about why this might be an attractive or not asset class for this particular moment.
2: That sounds great. And of course, we should be thinking about... The After Hours Catalog. Oh, pretty much <laughs> <valuable>, I think.
3: <laughs> I'm sure it would sell for a lot more than Bruce Springsteen. Yeah.
2: yeah. And Felix, what did you bring? I would like to talk about brokerage fees. And not only because it's always fun to talk about real estate and uh, conversations are never ending, but also because there was this lawsuit a big decision that I think at least has the potential to really change how real estate is bought and sold in the United States. And I'd love to get your take.
0: Great.
3: Okay, so before we get into music and Taylor Swift and Bruce Springsteen and all of that, let's talk about brokerage fees. Felix, give us a little bit of background here. What's so interesting to you
2: about this? That was a very convincing promotion of the topic. But yes, I do think it's very interesting. So as you might have seen last week, a federal jury awarded a huge award claiming essentially that the National Association of Realtors and some other large brokerages conspired to keep the fees for buying and selling real estate artificially high. Mm. It's almost two billion dollars in damages and since it's an antitrust suit it could potentially be tripled so that award alone is eye-popping and then not surprisingly there are many lawsuits like that new ones that got filed right after the verdict came out but also somewhere in the background there's antitrust activity brewing looking into this market and there are a few peculiarities that are really interesting and really unusual. The first is maybe that the percentage of what buyers and sellers typically pay doesn't really vary by the value of the house. When you think about it, it's already very unusual. So it's typically five to six percent or so. And maybe your house is a multi-million dollar house, or maybe your house is more typical in the hundreds of thousands it's always the same fee. The fee doesn't vary over time. Mm. So right now where the market is very tight, there's almost nothing to buy, you would think that that would have an influence and that doesn't really happen. And then maybe most importantly, the fees in the US are just also high in international comparison. I think Hong Kong is maybe one of the least expensive markets that I've seen. It's less than 2%. But even in the UK, it's typically between 1% and 2%. And so the question is, how does it actually work? And there's a couple of things that I think are really interesting. A first observation is that nominally on paper... It's the seller that pays the fee. And then the fee gets split between the seller's agent and the buyer's agent. But you might remember from your introductory economics class, what you normally do doesn't really matter that much because the incidence is essentially determined by how tight is the market. Is it mostly a seller's market? Is it mostly a buyer's market? And how we do it nominally doesn't really have that big an influence. And then the question is, how is it enforced? How is it that everybody seems to do it? And there, the interesting research finding is that if you try to sell a place and say, somehow you're a negotiation genius and you negotiate a much lower fee with your agent, you can list the property in one of these multiple listing services, but the buyer's agents will essentially steer their clients away from your property. What I'm curious about is now that this arrangement seems under attack, maybe it will go away, maybe it will not go away. We don't quite know yet. For sure, the NAR will appeal the decision and who knows exactly what happens in the legal process. But what's your sense, if it did go away, the formal arrangement that essentially forces real estate agents to follow these rules, what would we see? Would it be a completely different market?
3: I mean, I think a lot of aspects of the home buying market would be transformed. Okay. One of the reasons I think that this market has stayed the same for a long time, even with the entrance of Zillow and Redfin and some of these online platforms that should disintermediate the interactions, but have not, is in part because there's lots of regulation and red tape and forms to fill out and it's very opaque and mortgages involved and inspections but also just because most people don't buy houses a lot.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of like
3: planning a wedding. You do it once, maybe a couple of times, maybe three times. But most people are not doing this a lot, so they're not getting good at it. Hmm. And so that enables someone to come in and say, "Look, hey, I'm a middleman. Yes, you have to pay me, but I'll hold your hand through the process." And you kind of come away with the sense that Well, maybe I could have done that myself, especially if you're dealing with someone who's maybe not communicating to you what their value is that they're adding, because I do think some realtors do add a lot of value. But I think if you change the fee structure of how all this works, you could potentially have realtors paid by the hour, for example, which for Mm, a buyer mm -hmm. might be actually a much better deal because in theory, the buyer is not paying the fee. But in reality, the buyer is paying the fee because... For one thing, if it's a percent of the sale price, then the buyer's agent gets paid more when the sale price is higher. So then again, the agent has a sort of interest in working against their client's interest. So I mm. think this enables a lot more experimentation. It's probably very scary for real estate agents, but very encouraging for home buyers and sellers.
1: I totally agree, Sarah. In a way, it's fantastic news. And it's kind of remarkable news that this has gone on for so long and that it's finally been broken. There are a couple of pieces of the story that I love, by the way. The first is two of the brokers, Remax and Anywhere, settled right before this massive decision. (laughs) (laughs) And it makes you just realize sometimes settling is not that bad. And then, of course, now there are a host of lawsuits, Felix, as you mentioned, which total up to something like $40 billion. So things are going to change. And then finally... I love the fact that at the heart of it is this organization that we normally don't think about, which is this not-for-profit trade association, the National Association of Realtors, Mm -hmm. which is in some sense the heart of how this all works. And they're being held responsible. And they appear to be an organization that has some cultural issues more generally. So it's really interesting to see them targeted. I think it's wonderful primarily because think about what a 6% transaction cost does to mobility. And to me, the big thing here is if we have this huge transaction cost, people just are not as mobile and they're getting locked into situations they shouldn't be locked into. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that has very significant welfare effects. So for example, Americans move much less than they used to move. And once you free up 6% of a $400,000 house, it can change the calculus of when and how you sell. So I think it's not just something that will change maybe the housing market, but if fees come down to levels that are more common in the rest of the world, Mm. I think we can see mobility in a way we haven't seen before. So I just think this is a wonderful moment in a way, and
2: I'm looking forward to
1: seeing what happens with it.
2: What do you make of it, Felix? I agree with both of your observations. And then I wanted to emphasize also, it might make the job of realtors much more meaningful at one and the same time. And I know that's a little counterintuitive because you think, oh my God, they get paid so much money. Maybe sometimes for a sale that happens quite quickly. How can it possibly be good for them? But the interesting observation is because it's a fixed percentage of the sales price, you get much better paid in markets that have high housing prices. There's this famous study comparing Minneapolis and Boston, and Boston housing prices are much higher. And as a result, these compensations are much higher. And then guess what happens? You get massive entry. You get many more realtors that fight for these really attractive deals. And as a result... The number of transactions that you can actually engineer go way down. You're much less productive. And really, in a fascinating turn, how much money you make is almost the same. So it's one of these peculiar markets where there's almost a fixed pie that can be spread among few realtors or it can be spread among many, many, many people, which typically happens in the high price markets. But it's really Talented, smart people who could be doing something different, right. but in the end waste a lot of time, lured sometimes by what looks like an amazing job and maybe HGTV is not helping to dissuade people from going into this industry. But generally speaking, in particular, if you enter in a high price market, it's actually a bad idea. We're wasting people's talent. We're wasting people's time. And so lower fees will be better in that sense as well. I
1: think that's exactly right, Felix. And it's hard to appreciate that the misallocation of talent could be a big deal. And people think brokers are getting rich off these schemes. But if, in fact, entry is costless, as you point out, Felix, then the story is quite different. Mm. The other part of the story that I love, and I just want to give voice to a very, I think, unpopular opinion, which is it's interesting to see a lawsuit drive change. And I don't think we appreciate enough how lawsuits can actually effectuate change. So we think about technology as driving change. We think about corporations as driving change. But lawsuits and well-defined lawsuits will just change the world. (laughs) This is, I think, going to be an example of that. And so it's just a useful reminder that sometimes the way the world changes, as much as we like to ridicule people who are filing lawsuits, there is a side to that piece of the puzzle which is more interesting and socially constructive than i think we usually give credit to
2: mm-hmm. that's a great point mm. and we've seen this elsewhere yeah think about what happened to travel agents exactly the commissions used to be super super lucrative have gone away think about financial markets where commissions and transactions fees have really come down which helped democratization of financial markets trading in particular with sometimes positive effects and sometimes effects that we worry about a little bit. But all in all, making intermediation not quite as attractive, not quite as monopolistic as it is in many of the markets that we worry about, mostly good news for everyone involved.
3: I think that's right. I think it'll be a difficult transition for a lot of the people who've been working as realtors. Yeah. and. I think there's a little bit of a warning here for anyone who works as a kind of intermediator or agent, or someone who works based on commission, because I think this really puts pressure on you to show the value that you do bring. Because I do think that these people can bring enormous value. I'm not just saying that because I'm as an editor, kind of middleman, <laughs> <laughs> an editor who takes an author's work and then brings it to the public. Mm. I think that when a realtor is working with a client, they're going to have to work a lot harder to sit down with them, talk through the strategy, give really good advice on like, here are the comps. I've done this research. Here's how we're going to sell your house, you know, as opposed to kind of just taking their calls. So I think there's maybe a tough road there for some realtors, but also a warning sign for other people in similar types of fields who get paid the same way.
2: I think that sounds exactly right, Sarah. And there are international changes that actually speak to the story that you tell. In Germany, interestingly, in 2020 or 2021, I forgot exactly when, they shifted the fees from buyers to sellers. Hmm. And so you see one of the main reactions is that now many sellers then decide to go without a broker. And that, I think, is the biggest question to me, whether the intermediation truly creates value. As you pointed out, Sarah, I really end up with a better house. I feel more comfortable because I don't do it very often. I'm not very good at choosing the right place for me. Or is it the case that maybe zillow is a pretty good substitute for what a broker can do for me in which case i think we would see the industry shrink quite dramatically mm. but it's one of these good moments i think either way because if there's true value creation the profession will exist it's also not the case that travel agents have completely disappeared right because some of these people do something that's really valuable that's really great How much value is really created as a result of intermediation I think is one of the big questions and one of the things that we will see very quickly if people go away from the traditional process and if we see that there's many more direct deals between buyers and sellers, or if in fact everybody's better off because you have an expert at your side. Mm. Well,
3: I hope you guys will have me back on to talk about travel agents sometime because that's a fascinating
0: story too.
1: And especially if it involves going to the Lake District.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down.
1: Right. Music. And music as an asset class. Combining two of my favorite things, like finance and music. Sarah, go.
3: <laughs> I'm so glad you guys were eager to talk about this because... I'm quite curious to hear your thoughts here. So recently, as I'm sure you've noticed, artists like Justin Timberlake, Bob Dylan, Katy Perry, Bruce Springsteen, Shakira have all sold the rights to their music to investment companies. And it makes sense to me why artists would do this. They get a massive in some cases lump sum of money and they don't have to do the work of licensing their song out to advertisers, movie producers, apps, whoever wants to use it and buy the rights. But I'm a little bit confused as to why some of these deals are so massive and why these investment firms have been sort of rushing in to snap up these rights.
2: So maybe first, it's a good idea to talk a little bit about how the music industry typically works and how revenue is distributed. Because in part, what is happening is interesting that it's sort of the neglected side of the industry that is at play here. So I'll make a specific example. Suppose I had written a really great song. I would then go to my publisher and I would say, oh my God, I have this amazing song. And my publisher would reach out to Taylor Swift and others to see if they're interested in recording and performing my song. If you look at streaming revenue, which is now roughly 60% of the revenue in the industry, so that's a really big source of revenue. When you look at how that gets distributed, the publishing side gets almost nothing. So about 80% of the revenue goes to the label that recorded the album or the song. And then there's a split between the label and the artist, but 80% is already gone by the time the songwriter and the publisher even get to join in the party. And then the publisher and the songwriter typically split it half-half. That is, out of a dollar, if I wrote that song, I can expect about 10 cents or so. So these deals happen on that side, on the publishing side of the industry that traditionally has gotten much less revenue. Mm. And so a first interesting question to think about is, is there that much value created? Is that really we have underexploited opportunities? Or... Is there something else going on in the industry that now says, well, maybe the companies that used to act as publishers in the interests of songwriters, maybe they didn't do such a great job and there's lots of novel and interesting ways of doing it.
1: Right. Well, I'm going to unsurprisingly maybe take a tax and finance angle on this. (laughs) The first thing (laughs) just to say is there's just a massive benefit to the artists from selling they're not getting taxed at ordinary income rates they get a capital gain treatment on all this which is a very unusual exception to the rule but they basically get to get taxed at 20 instead of at 40 and that's pretty darn great the other piece of it i think is part of the is the industry story felix but it's really a finance story in part two so this all happens during a period where interest rates are low and you have lots of folks looking for yield And that has been the defining characteristic of the last seven years or more. And so when everybody's looking for yield, you start to look to different kinds of assets that maybe have steady streams where you can actually generate income. And moreover, if you think about it as a problem of diversification, you can imagine how if you're Bruce Springsteen and you're kind of have a whole chunk of your wealth wrapped up in (laughs) your songbook you might value it differently than a diversified set of investors. And so part of what's happening here is when you take those assets, and this happens in pharma, it happens in all kinds of places. When you take these assets out of the individual domain and you basically get people who are able to price those risks and those cash flows in a much more diversified way, then wow, that's pretty great. So I think that's part of what's going on. Now, the question is, well, wait a second, interest rates went up a lot, and now it's not as clearly desirable an asset class, and we're starting to see the cracks break on you know, mm-hmm. the system, including with this remarkable example in the UK, where we have one of the largest funds kind of breaking down and maybe having trouble. So to me, it's kind of like this wonderful story of the last 10 years, which captures a lot of what we've been seeing in the world for the last 10 years.
3: Yeah, I think that's interesting because during that decade, it was common to hear people behind these funds say things like, oh, it's so great. It's a source of cash. It's recurring revenue. It doesn't go up and down like oil or gold. And you're thinking, huh, I mean, I like music, but is it more valuable than something like oil or gold? I hadn't quite thought of it that way before. And also I think that there was a lot of attention paid to money draining out of recorded music because artists only get fractions of a penny for every stream or because of illegal downloads and stuff like Napster. So I think for a lot of people, it came as a surprise that suddenly this recorded music would be so valuable as opposed to live performances, which is where so much of the attention has been over the same period of time. So it seems like people were just waking up to this happening as the cracks started to form, in a way.
2: And I think the cracks also have to do with the traditional publishers. What is it that they don't do that now these funds can do so much better to squeeze much more value out of a particular set of rights? And One of the arguments that I often hear is, well, if you're a big publisher, you have tens or hundreds of thousands of songs, and these funds end up owning hundreds or maybe thousands of songs if they have really specialized. So they can be much more focused. They can be much more engaged in trying to make sure that McDonald's uses your song or that maybe it's included in a movie and so on and so on. That argument, frankly, I find a little hard to believe because, of course, the Traditional publishers, they also know that most songs have no value most of the time. And they have the right incentives to focus on the few that have potential. Mm-hmm. One way to think about the gains is for the super famous artists that traditionally have now owned a lot of their catalog maybe there the publishing function wasn't performed that well, and so the funds step in and they do a more reasonable job. But for the average artist where there is a publisher that actually gets roughly half of that revenue on the publishing side, it's a little hard to know why these funds should be so much more successful. Well, let me give you a
1: hypothesis that I'm coming up with on the fly, and you can knock it down, which Mm -hmm. is the firms that have been particularly active, KKR and Blackstone and others, Is there a sense in which they could exercise some power by pooling artists against the streamers? So, if you think that this is somehow, Felix, about bargaining power relative to the streamers. So, Felix, in your little case where you designed that song for Taylor, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which was a lovely story. (laughs) (laughs) I wish it was true. (laughs) That problem gets solved because we have this collective agent now who is going to be a very hard-nosed bargaining agent and who has all the right incentives and can push up against Spotify.
2: I don't know. Does that resonate with you as a feasible story? I think there's something to it, although the threat presumably is that you're not present on Spotify. Mm. And you've seen, even with someone like Taylor Swift, she cuts her ties to Spotify because that is really the industry right now. It's quite remarkable how music revenues have come back. So we're roughly in the same place that we were in the early 2000s or so, which is really miraculous. But what's the answer? It's all streaming. Right. No other part of the industry has really grown dramatically. And so in that relationship, it's quite difficult for me to see how you might put a lot of pressure on Spotify. I could maybe see that at the margins you can get some better terms, but in particular with the older pieces in the catalog, right? So when... Justin Bieber, Neil Young. Those are not the songs of today where you think, oh my God, I go on Spotify and I don't even hear the billboard number one. Those are the evergreens that get traded and that get sold. And how much, maybe you're right. It's an interesting question whether that really increases their bargaining power significantly.
3: I'm also going to throw another idea out there that has more to do with core competences than negotiating power, which is just I do think that managing a front catalog and a back catalog are different. It is a different skill set to recruit new artists, identify undiscovered talents, help them produce an album, launch them, market a brand new album, versus A song that's 50 years old and thinking to yourself, well, how could we get this in an Apple commercial? Mm -hmm. How could we get this on a Peloton stream so that Peloton would license this? I think that those are different sorts of skills. And I do think that as it is in a fragmented market, it's a lot of work if you are, say, the person who comes up with all the songs for the Peloton workouts and you think, well, I really want to license this song from the 90s, but I don't know who really owns this copyright anymore. And if there is a one-stop shop, then you can go to them and say, look, we want all your jock jams. We want all your workout music. Mm -hmm. And then you can negotiate that way. So I do think that there are different skills here at play from the publisher's perspective, and Mm -hmm. also maybe some ease from the matchmaking perspective.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. And maybe also in the cases where The same company is on the recorded music side and on the publishing side because recorded music gets so much more of the revenue. Maybe that's another reason why publishing is sort of, yeah, you know, it's a business, but it's not that great. It's not that interesting. Really what you want is the right kind of artist that then has a super, super popular song. The trend also to have much more collaboration in the industry where you have three, four, five, six, ten people who are part of the songwriting teams where you often sample from existing music and then that songwriter has to be compensated as well. All of those dilute the revenue streams on the publishing side and maybe bundling those then makes you pay a little more attention to the opportunities that do exist.
1: Yeah, your argument, Sarah, reminds me of the pharmaceutical and the biotech market where you might think quite naturally that developing new drugs is very distinctive from maybe making the most at the end of a patent of what the value is remaining in that patent and those are in fact very different competencies and you would expect them to be split before we leave this i just want to recommend everybody follows this ongoing saga in the uk involving one of these large funds i think it's pronounced hypnosis it's h-i-p-g-n-o-s-i-s which is really just a remarkable story in this case kind of a corporate governance story Mm -hmm. of somebody who's been running this fund and who also happens to have a management contract to run it, but also maybe has a right to buy it and maybe has a relationship with another potential buyer. And so when you think about corporate governance, it can seem quite boring, but this story is turning into just a really interesting example of what can go wrong when you don't think about conflicts terribly well. Mm. So really good story to watch.
3: I think I'd be remiss also without bringing it back to Taylor Swift, because I think what she's doing with re-recording her songs is really interesting. And just before we were sitting down to tape this, I saw that Billboard was reporting that the major labels are actually teaming up to stop artists from doing this. So they would sign new artists and say, you cannot re-record your songs for 10, 15, even 30 years after the album comes out.
1: Sarah, I was curious about that twist, which is I'm vaguely sympathetic to the music companies. So I'm very sympathetic to Taylor Swift because obviously if I was not I would get crucified. But I really genuinely am because <laughs> she's a goddess. Your yeah. daughters
2: will not speak to you for a month. Exactly.
1: <laughs> so she has a real problem with Scooter Braun and it's really a remarkable story of independence and her ability to fight back. But it does feel right for a producer to say you can't re-record. Is that wrong, Sarah?
3: I can see why they would want to put a time frame on it to say, okay, we're going to come up with some amount of time where we have the exclusive rights to this. That's like not uncommon in any kind of publishing. But 30 years is a long time. I mean, an artist that was 20 would not be able to re-record their music till they were 50. So that seems extreme to me.
2: What do you make of it, Felix? Obviously, it works for a superstar like Taylor Swift. Right. I think for everyone else, it would essentially mean that the music companies now have even weaker incentives to promote your product. So if a song ends up being really popular, that often has to do with the effort and the work of dedicated professionals who try to give visibility to new works and new artists. And I would worry a little bit in a world where everybody gets to re-record and then recapture the rights. Maybe generally speaking, it's not a terrible idea for artists to own their rights. But if that is so important to you, say so when we talk about the early contract. Mm. Of course it will influence the terms of that contract and then we can collaborate under a regime that is known to both. I think springing the surprise on the contractual party that helped making you famous to begin with, that doesn't seem quite right.
3: Well, I'm going to take the side of talent in this talent versus capital war in that case. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm curious to hear your guys' recommendations and I'm wondering if you might be recommending any music. Well, me here, why don't we start with you?
1: So I was going to recommend this anyway, but I just want to take credit for Bridging our two topics housing and music and rights. You're like an
2: artist, you claim credit before you don't
1: even know. <laughs> exactly. And I do want royalties for this idea. So I have finally got to see the re release of Stop Making Sense, oh. which is the Talking Heads concert movie and one of my favorite bands ever. But the movie by Jonathan Demme, has been re-released by A24, which, by the way, I think is the most interesting media company in the world right now. Mm -hmm. I've previously recommended Minari and Beef and now Stop Making Sense. They're just doing great work. But I saw it in a theater and it was just... So special. Now, I know everyone else is going to a different concert movie this season, but I am going to recommend (laughs) Stop Making Sense by Talking Heads and Jonathan Demi as the greatest concert movie ever, even if you don't like the Talking Heads. Go try to see it in a theater. They've remastered the music, and it was an occasion for the band, which has been kind of not getting along to actually come back together, which was also just a wonderful thing to see. So what's the link to brokerage fees? Everyone's coming to my house and burning down the house. Oh Oh my God. (laughs) I thought you were familiar with the catalog.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What do you have for us, Sarah?
3: I have something a bit different. And actually, it's a testament to how much you guys have changed how I think about these things that all summer as I was binge reading this book series, I kept thinking, I really hope they have me back on After Hours because I want to recommend this so badly. (laughs) So my recommendation is a series of books written by Amy Stewart. They're historical novels. They're set in pre-World War I, New Jersey, when it was rapidly expanding, changing, horse-drawn carriages were switching over to cars. There was a huge amount of manufacturing, and it focuses on these three sisters, one of whom becomes involved with law enforcement as an enforcer, one of whom is a sort of singer and vaudeville entertainer. And the other one about whom less is known, but they sort of build up her character in an amusing way in the book series. Mm. The first book in the series is called Girl Waits with Gun. I read it not knowing that it was historical fiction. I thought it was just fiction fiction. And I thought at the end of it, wow, what a remarkable and inventive and amazing story. And then I read the epilogue and i was like oh my god it's based on real people it's actually- so yeah. <laughs> it was entertaining it was moving but not upsetting or sad if you're sort of avoiding those sorts of books parts of it were very funny and i just can't recommend it enough wow. there's like seven or eight books in the series i'm really hoping there's going to be more
1: i'm just taking a look at it here it looks fantastic that's great wonderful it's all the more rewarding when you read a very entertaining story and then you find out it's really grounded in reality somehow it makes it even more wondrous than it was the first time you thought about it. Yes. And Felix, what do you have?
2: I'm taking us back to a part of reality that is a little less comfortable. So I had recommended the Ezra Klein podcast before, but I want to especially recommend an episode where he's talking about what is happening in the Middle East. And it's recorded right after the Hamas massacre happened. And it's a marvelous, interesting episode. It's just him. He has no guests. But you can just feel the raw emotion, the response to just the unbelievable atrocity that just happened. He talks about his faith and being Jewish and what it means in that moment. And then the part that I really admire about him is One of his conclusions so early on is that the moment requires us to do something that we're actually typically not very good at. We need to keep these two very different thoughts in our mind at one and the same time. Namely that there's this unspeakable barbaric atrocity and then there is the broader context that lets us ask, what's a good response? What can you do? What should you do in the case of this awful terrorism? And the way he goes back and forth thinking about Palestinians and Palestinian families and in view of maybe some people expecting him to be just seeing this one side, it's just really remarkable. It's relatively short, I think, because it was sort of almost like a bonus episode. But if you want to hear someone just honestly struggle with what it means and what one could do and how one could make the situation better. It's a really fabulous episode. Israel is giving Hamas what it wants is what it's called. It was aired on October 18. And it spoke to me, I think, in part because this idea that we're not very good at holding two thoughts in our mind at one at the same time strikes me as so right. right. Think about tech. Either you think tech is evil and needs to be pushed back, or you think, oh my God, tech is like the best thing that's happened to humanity. Think about, say, Republican extremists in Congress who basically make the parliamentary process not work at all, and then they have ideas around the budget going back to regular rule, which are exactly right. And that's just very difficult for us to do, to think two really opposing things about a particular issue or a particular topic at one and the same time. And so if you have a chance to listen to it, I think it's really wonderful. That
1: sounds great.
3: Yeah, thanks, Felix.
2: And so we're out of time. This was it for tonight. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This was After Hours from the TED Audio Collective.